Welcome to season two, episode two of Radio Monash's No Theory. We're at week four of semester, so a quarter of the way there. We hope you're all feeling a bit of a rush still about being back on campus. But um, if not, we have some great conversa- conversations planned for today, which will surely spring you to life. So today's guest we are very excited about. She's a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne. She has two published novels already titled Honeyflower and Pansy and The Awakening. And she's also produced a range of poetry, short stories and non-fiction articles for publications such as um, Hecate, Archer, Farrago and Lot's Wife. Um, she was the recipient of the University of Melbourne's Shakespeare and Faye Miles Scholarships in 2019. In 2020, she was listed in the top 30 emerging writers by SBS Australia. Her work will be included in an anthology published by Hardy Grant Press in late 2021. Um, so let's welcome her on the show then. This is Esme James. Welcome. Hi there. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Oh, no, look, we're so excited. And again, we're so sorry um, (laughs) that you have had to bear witness to our technical problems. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really great to have you. Thanks very much, Esme. (laughs) Um, So that is an incredibly impressive resume you've got going there. So I'd like to start off by asking you, what drew you to writing in the first place? Um, I think I've always wanted to be a writer from as long as I can possibly remember. Um, and I spent countless hours in childhood just scribbling all over my mother's books and especially my dad's good collections. Um, so I think it was always something I wanted to do. Oh, absolutely. I don't think they were so happy with me, but that's okay. (laughs) Giving it some authenticity. (laughs) Absolutely. Mm. Um, so it's something I've just been doing my entire life and I guess that's just transitioned to um, later on being a, in a professional field. Yeah, it sounds very organic. And I think a lot of um, artists start out that way in all sorts of disciplines. You know, you hear about absolutely. Uh, visual artists and sketches and whatnot who it started with the finger painting and just in their, their <laughs> novels and diaries and whatnot. So, um, yeah, that's lovely to hear. Um, so... In some of your writing then, what types of maybe styles or forms do you really enjoy experimenting with or trying out? Um, Do you have some favourites? And how do you think they object to the status quo, if you feel that they do, that is? Um, A lot of my work, especially in later years, I think would be categorised as magical realism. Um, And that's... uh, I think that's been a bit of a journey in finding which voice works for me. Um, as every artist and creative would understand, you play and you imitate a lot of um, writers and other creatives uh, that you look up to and inspire you. Um, and eventually this is, uh, I think, where my voice has settled in this uh, drawing a lot from personal experience um, and then taking it to this kind of more subconscious realm um, and trying to put into words the way that uh, we feel about certain situations rather than describing that situation, if that Mm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, it's quite funny, actually. I first found out about you when you were published in Lot's Wife. Um, A bit of a funny story. So I... 
actually had a couple of poems published there as well. And they credited my poems under your name. And I was like, oh, oh. it's Esme James. And, and so I looked you up and afterwards, you know, I'm like, oh, wow, I feel privileged to have like, you know, Esme's name on my work. That's actually, ooh. <laughs> but I feel like name That's dropping hilarious. that. Now. But um, yeah, so I have read a bit of your stuff. And yeah, it was quite funny, so um, funny. in hindsight. But it, it brought me to your work and um, yeah, your social media presence. So I'm very grateful that that happened actually and I've been able to read some of your stuff and I can definitely see what you're talking about here um exploring the yeah magical realism your personal experiences and just embedding that um so yeah that's um that's really lovely so what do you think are some of your goals for the future then uh so a lot of my goals are probably more short-term orientated uh because I think the way that my uh life and career have progressed up until this point um it's been very unexpected and so I've decided to just kind of go with that um so within the next five years I'm obviously hoping to finish up my PhD um I've got a manuscript at the moment that I'm hoping uh, to have uh, self-published by the end of this year, which will be incredibly exciting if that happens, um, and continuing to work on another uh, novel uh, as that kind of is progressing. My head's in different spaces, but within exciting. five years, I hope that all three of those things are kind of wrapped up and um, and then seeing what happens from there and what doors open. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So, Esme, you're currently a PhD candidate investigating the interception of women's sexual and spiritual experience within modernist literature. So can you tell us a bit more about that thesis? Absolutely. Um, So my thesis has kind of expanded from uh, that starting point. um, And I'm now looking at uh, 18th to 20th century literature and looking at the interception of sexual and spiritual experience, uh, particularly at the end, looking at how women and queer experience differs from uh, more dominant um, representations in literature. And one of the things that I spend a lot of time doing is reading a lot of uh, erotic works from, you know, the 1700s, 1800s, um, and how that changes when women come onto the scene and have a voice and how their perception of um, eroticism is very, very different and I believe a lot more harmonious in a lot of ways. How do you think that um, queer and uh, female literature does differ um, from the more I guess broader literature yeah like some of these different perspectives you're talking about how do are they like Mm -hmm. manifesting more specifically um especially when we get to the modernist era um there is a big breaking with um normal literary convention uh when you get authors like Virginia Woolf coming onto the scene who wants to formally and stylistically um represent how different her emotions are from the very you know cis white male authors who've come before her um and she shows that you know we have these like beautiful long sentence structures we have this kind of dream uh, again magical realism landscape that starts to come into these works um And we see them really trying to push the boundaries of what it means to be a writer or a novelist. Um, And they're taking it in a lot of ways as far as they can possibly go. Um, One of my particular um, areas of interest is Gertrude Stein um, and her poetry has generally been 
uh, declared completely unreadable. Um, but I think it's the opposite. I think when you read that um, as a woman or as someone from the LGBT, BTQ plus community, uh, there's something in that that you can relate to, this kind of weird, uncomfortable zone. Um, and it's relatable. And just because she tried to write her own truth. And I think that's what's so important about that era of authors. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Because um, I'm actually taking a literature and modernism unit this semester. And just in the past week, we've had a look at Gertrude Stein, Virginia Woolf. And oh, whatnot. fantastic. And um, yeah, a lot of relatable things you were saying there that the initial read, it's how do I make sense of this? What is going on? <laughs> but then you look a little bit deeper and even sort of her backstory and what she was trying to do with it and it's um yeah it's quite profound really I mean that's quite a controversial topic but uh yeah no there's a fantastic quote from um an author of her time and it says Gertrude Stein stops uh, making sense and starts making difference and I think that really summarizes a lot what these authors are trying to do Mm, that's a yeah that's a really good quote um I love that thanks for that (laughs) um excellent well we might actually go for our tour what am I saying, my goodness, to our first song break of the day. Um, This is Subterranean Homesick Blues by Bob Dylan. We hope you enjoy, but we'll be right back with Esme James. All right, so we're back here on Radio Monash's No Theory with today's lovely guest, Esme James. So Esme, you've actually had a couple of novels published already through American Press, I believe you said. Yes, Mm I I believe they go by Clean Reads now. Um, They were Australia when I first signed up Mm -hmm. with them. But yeah, they're a small uh, American press. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So these are titled Honeyflower and Pansy and The Awakening. So can you tell us a little bit about these? Yes, absolutely. Um, I wrote these firstly very long ago. Um, Both of these novels were written when I was in high school. Um, So they're definitely not representative of how my writing looks now um and they are quite fun to look back on um but both of them um kind of played around the themes of representation of disability uh particularly honey flower and pansy which um i had published um at 18 just as i was leaving high school um and i think i mean they're both while I definitely look back on them and kind of giggle a little at um, the writing. Um, I think they were really representative of the themes that I have become particularly interested in and playing around and finding my voice. And I am so grateful that I was able to do that so early Mm -hmm. um, because that is such a big period of experimentation. Yeah, I mean, that's so impressive because for any type of artist, it's one of the biggest challenges is actually being vulnerable and putting your work out there and not being so self-conscious of it that you're terrified terrified to share it so the fact you're doing that from Mm. such a young age is um yeah yeah, and it's hard because a lot of writers you know write from their own personal experiences and put a lot of their you know heart on the page so Mm. yeah it's brave yeah it's fantastic absolutely and it was fantastic, especially um, the Honeyflower and Pansy. I was able, because um, my brother's disabled, um, and I was able to uh, play around for the first time with representing a uh, relationship with um, a sibling with a disability and um, trying to um, advocate for them without speaking on top of them, um, which is 
been incredibly important in my later writing about how learning how to do that well. So I was really fortunate that um, when I was working with publishers at the time of releasing that, that they had a lot of advice about how to do that, like ethically. Mm, yeah. In fact, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because it's quite interesting. I mean, in literature, we want to see representation. And I imagine from, as you were saying, the writer's point of view, you want to represent these different identities. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, do I have uh, the authority on this? Am I doing it in a really sensitive way? Um, So yeah, can you tell us a bit about that sort of process of encapsulating identities um, whilst being mindful of those things? Um, I think one of the um, best things that I've learned was to always try and write from the sibling's perspective um, solely because you don't want to be claiming their voice. Um, So that kind of like second person narration um, that you're helping to tell their story rather than telling it for them. Um, And that's what Honeyflower and Pansy played around with to begin with. Um, One of uh, my latest manuscripts that I'm hoping to self-publish this year um, was again about uh, voicing two different autistic characters And one of the reasons that I ended up uh, deciding not to go down a traditional publishing route for that story is that when I was working with publishers uh, to get this ready, uh, they wanted a lot of big rewrites um, of the voice of um, these characters to make them more approachable to a mainstream audience. Um, And that's isn't something that I was generally prepared to do um, because I did want this to be as authentic as possible to uh, the characters that these were based on in my real life, including my brother and um, my uh, nan's brother as well, who both had um, autism and trying to make it as authentic and genuine as possible. When you talk about, like, authenticity, um, yeah, did you just talk when you're writing, like, these characters who have autism, did you uh, consult with your brother and your uncle or, um, or your grandma's brother? Um, <laughs> and, like, you know the new movie by Sia called Music? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm aware. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, you know how she didn't, like, con- consult with any um, autism, like, advocacy groups or anything? She only talked a bit with... Yeah. I think Autism Speaks, which is like a yeah, hate group. very problematic. Yeah, so how did you kind of, I guess, try to solve that issue? Um, so my um, brother is nonverbal and um, my uh, nan's brother has unfortunately passed away. So those options weren't necessarily available to me in, um, I guess, the most conventional sense. Um, but while my brother is nonverbal um, and he would be classified as like low functioning autism, we have a, an incredible connection and way of communication, which is very, very unique to us. Um, and I communicate with him a lot through singing and he'll respond to me um with his actions facial expressions and those kind of things um so one of the characters in this novel was pointedly um is non-verbal and there's another character who has limited speech um and one of the big changes that they um uh, when I was working on this novel, I was told that it was too quiet, um, which was kind of the point of uh-huh. this book, <laughs> um, was to let like the actions of characters speak rather than the words and really trying to play around with how that can be represented in a book, which is words, um, and trying to voice nonverbal communication. Um, 
So I, I guess, yeah, in terms of how the consultation happened, I have tried to find a way of expressing that very, very special connection that I had with my own brother through this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that actually, because as I said, I'm a little bit of a, a groupie on your social media and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I've I've seen that connection you have with your brother and um, I imagine that would be so interesting to read and see how you've conveyed that and put that into print. So, um, yeah, no, that's, that's really lovely. Um, so you were saying that your previous novels, you obviously went through American Press, they've been retitled now, um, but the one you're working on at the moment, you are self-publishing. So can you tell yeah. us a little bit about those processes um, and how do you think that self-publishing opposed to traditional might actually be able to object to the status quo? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think uh, I have become a big proponent of self-publishing uh, within the last uh, year or so because I believe, and while there is still some fantastic small press publications available and there is some great publishers, um to claim artistic and creative authority of your own work is something that's very, very hard to do when you are going through these bigger institutions. Um, and a lot of the time, you know, even the royalties or something that you will see can be somewhere as low as 10% of book profits go back to you. And that is a lot when you think that a novel can take anywhere from a year to five years to write. Mm-hmm. A lot of the editing will be you. Um and generally they'll have someone come on board for creative cover-up, but that is about it. Um, and that's not saying that this speaks for all publishing um, because there are some fantastic ones out there. I'm sure people have had better experiences. Um, but something like the book that I'm working on at the moment called The Silent Song is so important to me personally and to the story I want to tell about my brother, who is one of the most important people in my life. Mm-hmm. Um And I'm not, uh, I guess, willing to compromise on the vision of that novel because at the end of the day, I don't mind if it doesn't reach a large audience. If it reaches one person and really resonates with them in a way that they haven't seen uh, in other books, then that is fantastic. Job well done. (laughs) That's really all I want here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really lovely to hear. So... um You've also been incredibly successful on TikTok um, with your... (laughs) (laughs) I love that laugh, that reaction, like, ooh, yes. (laughs) It's a bit of a, I guess, some people, you know, are are absolutely obsessed and addicted to TikTok, but others are just very looked down on it, unfortunately. (laughs) But but your channel has blown up. It's like, yes. So, yeah, with your kinky uh, history series. So... (laughs) <laughs> where you talk about the history they didn't teach you at school. So for listeners who aren't so familiar, would you like to explain what you talk about in these videos? Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <So laughs> Get into the juicy part of the <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dear. Um, so my kinky history series um, are obviously these 60-second videos that um, explore the evolution of human sexual history, um, going from a brief overview of civilizations from ancient to present uh, to doing a deep dive into some famous historical figures and bringing to light some of their bedroom secrets. <laughs> <laughs> bedroom secrets, I love that. <laughs> what kind of bedroom secrets have you 
uh, revealed. Or... Yeah. Or, or do you have a favorite even? Um, I have been blown away. <laughs> Every time I think I've said all there is to say about the possible kinky figures of history, I just look up someone else, do a bit of a research and there it is um i am yet to find one major historical figure that does not have some dirt that i can expose and that is concerning <laughs> and great <laughs> it's just like spitball uh popular characters and p- popular people in history like winston churchill did he have any kinky history or <laughs> <laughs> winston churchill is a, is on the list for next yes. week oh, oh, next week oh yeah we'll be looking out <laughs> does, does he have bedroom secrets as you were saying before he, oh, he does he has some wonderful letters that um i again accidentally found because someone in the comments you know can you do an episode on Churchill? I'm like, what on earth is on Churchill? And then I just sat there all night reading his letters, quite <laughs> having a nice time. <laughs> so how much time, I guess, does it take you to do all this extra research and um, uncover, as you put it so eloquently, those bedroom secrets? <laughs> um, well, at the beginning when this, um, when this series started kind of accidentally, I was... Um, just uh, really saying a lot of the excess research that I've done for my own PhD. So a lot of it was just in my own head and I didn't really know what to do with this accumulated knowledge on famous figures. Um, And so I put them straight into the TikToks. Um, But now as it's evolved and um, people are really enjoying it and I'm trying to get more and more content out there, I find that I keep on going into like little rabbit holes. Like I'll just do a quick fact check on a video before I put it out just to make sure my memory is correct and then suddenly I'm looking up what on earth Albert Einstein was saying to his second wife and I'm just going <laughs> on a tangent and finding out more and more <laughs> wasn't his second so, wife his cousin or something wasn't he yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was married to his uh, cousin it was first cousin as well I think oh, first cousin oh I wouldn't expect that <laughs> My goodness. A lot uh, of historical figures are married to their cousins. It's a, we, it's a concerning amount of people. <laughs> I mean, it explains a lot. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, that would... I'd be so prone to rabbit holes. I don't think I'd get anything else done after starting to do a deep dive on these figures. Um, uh, well, it, I mean, it will generally happen that I'll be trying to study something seriously for my PhD and then I'll hear something about um, a secret um, queer society from the 16th century and suddenly that's all I'm doing with my day is uh, reading about secret societies in the 1500s London. <laughs> what a wonderful pastime, though. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. very fun. So why is it important to teach and talk about the history that was not taught at school. Mm, yeah, particularly because it is, um, you're bringing to light these sort of more sexual facts that have, have been very suppressed. And um, even more so with, as you were talking about, women and queer identities as well. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the um, main things is the fact that these are still secrets. Um, And so when I'm making these videos, um, and a lot of the time, you know, I'll be talking about ancient Egypt, and I'll be talking about, um, you know, trans rulers that they had, um, and various queer relationships and everything that were buried in tombs. And people are really, really shocked that we are still seeing the same debates around, 
gender identity and sexuality happen now as they do in the pre-biblical era. Um, and I think the reason we're still having those debates is because we continue to sweep discussions around sexuality and everything under the rug. Mm. And because we're not talking about it, um, this is going to keep on happening maybe for uh, a couple more thousand years until we stop this taboo um, and people can actually realise that the history that we have as queer individuals or um, random interests and perversions are totally normal and they always have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've always, yeah, like a huge argument against like queer people is oh, you know, this is just something made up recently. and Yeah, it's a very modern issue. Yeah, whereas, yeah, mm. pe- like queer people have always, always existed. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, even looking at what we were talking about earlier, Virginia Woolf, the Bloomsbury Group and whatnot, how <laughs> they were yeah. so much coming out of there. I mean, I don't know if you've done an episode on um, the Bloomsbury Group yet, but I feel like <laughs> they would also be a, a great one. So it's definitely always been there. Um Mm, Absolutely. Yeah, it's exciting to to foreground it. How do you think then um, more broadly, I guess, acknowledging sexuality and even these perversions and how it's a natural part of, I guess, being human, how do you think that Mm -hmm. could positively or negatively, I mean, um, Mm. if you want to go in that direction, affect modern society and people moving forwards? Well, I think when we have this uh, perception that we don't talk about these things, that these things are private things and it's all very hush-hush, we develop this culture of continual shame um, and whether that's internal shame that you're putting on yourself or shame that you're um, projecting onto someone else and it will become quite hostile. Um, We lack this compassion and empathy with other human beings by not talking about these things. I very, very strongly believe. And when we actually accept that sexuality is an immutable part of human nature, we accept a part of ourselves and a part of everyone in society. Hopefully, if we can actually develop finally a more open communication Um, I think we will start to see a lot more connection between people than we probably haven't for uh, (laughs) ancient Egypt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, excellent. Some really great points there. And it could even, um, sort of as you were saying, connection, acceptance, cure some, maybe not cure, but improve some issues we're still seeing in feminism around um, slut-shaming, particularly projecting Mm -hmm. it onto women and whatnot. So... Yeah, absolutely. Um, excellent. Great points there, Esme. So we might go on to our second song break for today's episode. Um, this is Fidelity by Regina Spector. So enjoy, but we will be back shortly again with Esme James. Thanks. Welcome back, everyone. That was Fidelity by Regina Spector. We're here today at Radio Monash's No Theory with our guest, Esme James. So Esme, um, How do you think that writing and literature, or more broadly, the arts, can object to the status quo? I think if anything is going to object to the status quo, it's going to be the arts. Um, And I've always considered that if we're going to avert a potential upcoming apocalypse, it's probably going to be the comedians and writers of this world that are going to do it. Um, And I think that's because 
it's probably one of the few areas of um, our society where you can speak and critique quite openly um, without necessarily like the repercussions of going against the status quo. Like that is your job as an artist is to continue to push boundaries. So how do you think you push boundaries as a creative? I think a lot of my work, especially um, the ones more based in sexuality, I don't think I ever set out to um, push the status quo or whatnot, but then I've never had a work that hasn't come out without um, various trigger warnings and Mm -hmm. just warnings for sexually explicit content on it. And it's not something I realise that I do, But I think after a while, when you give yourself permission to just write for yourself and not what you think other people want from you, uh, you come up with these pieces that do go against the grain quite accidentally. And that's great. That means you've just been authentic to yourself and to your ideas. um, And someone somewhere will probably relate to that. Mm, I think, yeah when you're not necessarily aiming for it, as you're saying, when it just happens organically and naturally, that can be when it has the most impact. I've sort of seen that within, um, Mm. I was watching the documentary or sort of behind the scenes of Schitt's Creek of all things, um, which I (laughs) sort of might binge watch over the the break. Um, And yeah, how they weren't necessarily setting out to challenge the status quo, especially when it came to um, homosexuality and some of the characters and things like that. But they were just presenting these characters living their lives as they are, not necessarily trying to show how they're marginalised or have experienced trauma and things like that. And just naturally people gravitated towards it and really loved that depiction and felt it was so Mm -hmm. empowering. And I think that's what people are trying to shift towards too as well with like, you know, Black Lives Matter or Mm -hmm. trying to depict people of of colour in literature and whatnot, not always showing them as um, deeply impacted by trauma, but just people, yeah, living their lives sort of thing. Um, There's like a huge debate like within the queer community about that, especially with um, lesbian films um, that always either like set um, in like, they're always like a historical drama or it's about like coming out. And it can be, yeah, it's a bit, it feels like the audience isn't then they're not making it for a queer audience. They're making it for a straight audience, especially like the coming out ones. Absolutely. Yeah. So to have characters who are queer or who are people of color or who are disabled, um, just going about their everyday lives and how their identities may be like, you know, change, change the way that they live their everyday lives compared to like people who aren't in that minority um, mm-hmm. is yeah, really empowering and, and not like as alienating. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think um, there's a fantastic quote from the uh, writer, um, actress, Rachel Bloom, who created Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. <gasps> oh and- my God. Yeah. Sorry, I just got very excited then. <laughs> Woman after my own heart. Um, oh, I know. <laughs> my goodness. She said in one of her interviews that when creating the show, she didn't write to try and be relatable. She um, she wrote to tell her truth. And I think that that is such an important resonance through all of these things um, when we're talking about representation in work and why it's so important to have 
a very diverse production team as well because you want people to be able to show their perspectives and the way that they see the world without it being forced. You just want these different voices to come out very truthfully and very authentically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, definitely. I, I had another point there and I just completely... Oh, yep, sorry, it's back. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess it's it's the difference between sometimes doing things performatively or, again, mm-hmm. to use that word, organically. It just comes out a little bit more um, sincere and rich rather than trying to force it. So, yeah, I mm-hmm. guess these are all things that creatives are needing to navigate in these modern times. Um, mm. And, yeah, particularly, I guess, since the beginning of the, the 20th century when we've wanted to push more boundaries and whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. but, yeah. So Excellent. talking about um, boundaries... Um, what are some of your boundaries as a writer and as a creative and like how do you say no um, in the work that you do? I think learning to say no is possibly one of the most important lessons that I have learned and I'm still learning in a lot of ways Um, but going from the ability of uh you know saying yes to everyone uh i think which is especially as women we're uh, very very um i guess almost taught to do that yeah, um, to say yes take suggestions um jump on board with what people say and want from you there is so much empowerment i found from saying no when opportunities are offered to you um or you know, in terms of writing various work that's been offered, various edits that have been made, and knowing that you trust in the boundaries that you have professionally enough and what you're worth enough to say no to some of these things that come up is so empowering. And we underestimate that with, I think, our very yes mindset that came out in the last 10 years that, you know, you you miss 100% of the opportunities that you don't take. And Mm. I think that that quickly becomes very, very, very problematic Mm. because saying yes to everything is just an overload of opportunities and stimulation. Um, Mm -hmm. Saying no, knowing what your area of expertise is, knowing um, what kind of compensation that you should be getting from these kind of things, um, knowing what you need to work on that will be mutually beneficial is possibly one of the best lessons you can ever learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that's what we've spoken about um, a lot on the show with other guests as well. Sort of that toxic positivity and not necessarily mm-hmm. um, working. We, we need to focus more on working smarter rather than mm-hmm. harder in a way um, and figuring out boundaries yeah. and priorities. And yeah, particularly for women that, I guess, imposter syndrome that can sometimes, you know, be particularly bad. Um, and <laughs> I, I don't know, it just it puts on that extra pressure to say yes to as many opportunities as possible because if you're not you know you're not going to make it and you're not deserving of the position or whatever successes you're having kind of yeah and I think there's still that um very toxic um feel that we are fortunate to be given opportunities still as women so we should Mm. say yes to them I think that is still around Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is one of the most important things that we do teach the next generation and ourselves how to say no. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we 100% agree, which is um, 
why we're here with no theory. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. Excellent. Um, well, unfortunately, we will have to start wrapping up for today, even though, honestly, I feel like this conversation could go on and on. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Esme, and our apologies again for the little bit of the late start. We've really enjoyed this conversation and everything you've had to share. Um, just before we wrap up, we have got on our social media links to both your TikTok website and Instagram. You were talking a little bit earlier about your um, upcoming novel that you're working on. Did you want to just quickly mention to listeners where that will be available? A um, bit of a timeline and what? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So if, uh, if you wanted to get more information about the silent song, which is hopefully uh, will be available for publication in the later half of the year um, in print online, and possibly an audio book down the line. We shall wait and see. Um, if they wanted to keep on touch on my socials or on my website, um, I'm badly active. So <laughs> I really need to take a step back, but um, I will definitely be spamming on there. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so yeah, Samir, would you like to yeah, wrap well, up? Thank you, Esme, for that. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time out of your day for us to interview you. Um, now... We have the song Rain On Me. Is Could you just tell us a little bit about why you chose that song, Esme? Uh, Rain On Me has been my anthem through lockdown. Um, there is nothing <laughs> like Lady Gaga that will actually get you up from the bedroom to the living room. So mm -hmm. I love that. Very good point. Spotify said that I had streamed it uh, way too many times last year. <laughs> so. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, um, again, thanks, Esme. We'll finish up today on that Rain On Me by Lady Gaga. Thank you to all of our listeners. We'll be back next week, Wednesday at 2 p.m. Uh, have a lovely week. We'll talk to you then. Bye. Thank you so much, guys. Bye.